Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you subscribe and that you leave favorable reviews. Today, we're joined by Brooke Medina, Director of Communications at Civitas Institute, based in North Carolina. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you guys for having me on. So for those of our listeners who are not familiar with Civitas, tell us a little bit about about the organization and what your role is there. Sure. So Civitas Institute is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy organization at the state level. We're based in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we have three primary policy focuses. I call them our three E's. So that's economic, education, and elections policy. And as the director of communications there, I handle just about everything outward facing as it pertains to press relationships and our social media accounts, our websites, messaging strategy, making sure the policy people say what they're supposed to say when they're supposed to say it and all that jazz. So North Carolina was in the news recently for the special election. I know there's a lot of people that were uh, in the media that were trying to sort of extrapolate from the special election, trying to you know predict what this may mean for uh, the 2020 election. Tell us a little bit about what happened in the special election, what were the results, what were the issues, and, and whether you think that there's really anything that could be drawn from that one race to, uh, to the national scene in 2020. Okay, sure. So this was an election that had followed up after the, the general midterm election in 2018, and it resulted from a, a case of election fraud, or namely ballot harvesting, which is illegal in North Carolina. So this was uh, a district, it's called North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. It runs from Charlotte all the way to Fayetteville, which is where Fort Bragg is. And um, essentially, the Republican candidate uh, had hired on some staffers, and those staffers allegedly engaged in ballot harvesting. Absentee ballot information or requests are made public in North Carolina. And so what would happen is that when the ballot harvesters found out, oh, these particular people are asking for absentee ballots, or we can actually order some on behalf of them, and then they would go to those areas in which those ballots were requested, and they would go, and I'm using air quotes here, help those individuals fill out their absentee ballots. And uh, they were usually hired political operatives for either party, and then they would submit those absentee ballots. Well, if that individual didn't happen to vote the way that they wanted them to, then they may not actually turn in those absentee ballots on their behalf. And so it was just this middleman that was really steering the elections. And since this election was such a close race, I mean, it was one, the Republican candidate won by about 900 votes. Um, the State Board of Elections looked at it much more closely, and um, and then they decided not to certify the election. And so that led to a special election being called, and there was a new Republican candidate, and his name was Dan Bishop, and he went head-to-head with Dan McCready, who was the Democratic candidate. But back to the initial question, you know, what does this hold for 2020? Well, a lot of those on the left really, really wanted this to be some sort of predictor uh, or referendum against President Trump. And they thought if they could secure 
a Democratic win in this largely Republican district, then that would signify that there was enough disenchantment within the Republican Party to really, uh, for them to make some headway in some of these swing districts going into 2020. Um, but that ended up not being the case. Now, Trump won that district by almost 12 points back in 2016, and the Republican candidate only won it by two points. But even so, the Republican candidate still won. So I think that this is just indicative of North Carolina becoming more purple anyways, uh, as are a number of other states. There are new swing states um, cropping up across the U.S., and North Carolina is just one of them. Yeah, so this is something where I feel like I must be stupid and missing something, but whenever you've had one of these special elections or other things, people will try to draw lessons from it for uh, the Trump reelect or the general state of the Republican Party or things like that. And the thing that I don't get is when you have a special election, the turnout is much, much lower than for a presidential election. And in fact, even for a midterm congressional gubernatorial election, the turnout is lower. So how can you really draw any lessons from that one way or the other for a presidential election? Because, you know, the level of turnout matters in determining who wins. I think that's a good question. It seems that the Democrats are just grasping at straws. I mean, the the Russia investigation didn't pan out and turn into impeachment like they had hoped. And they're just looking for everything to be a referendum on the president, as are many Republicans as well. And so they're looking at these elections, including a special one, like you noted, which has way fewer voters actually turn out to cast their ballots. Um, and they're looking for something uh to portend doom or victory in 2020. And I'm, I'm just not seeing that that's actually playing out. I think that this really was a special election and we can't draw too many conclusions based on it. Well, you made a comment about North Carolina maybe becoming more purple. And that's something that, you know, we hear discussions about that here in Texas. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the expressions we hear here fairly often is, uh, don't California my Texas. And I, I'm not quite sure... Uh, if, if you're having the same situation with a lot of people moving into North Carolina the way they are into Texas. Um, but what's your sense on, you know, if North Carolina is becoming more purple, why do you think that is? So New Jersey, <laughs> people from New Jersey are moving here. That's why it's becoming more purple. But uh, it is actually becoming more purple, I'd say. Or another way to put it, perhaps, is that there is a growing urban-rural divide. And North Carolina's two bigger cities, Raleigh and Charlotte, are experiencing exponential growth. And a lot of these people are coming from places like New Jersey and Connecticut. Uh, some are coming from California, although I think te Texas uh, definitely is at more risk of being Californianized than we are. But by and large, I think that there are people coming from these states that have left because of the high taxes. And uh, to include Illinois, they're leaving there as well. And they're relocating here. They're okay with, with the home prices. They think that those are reasonable. So they'll vote for these bonds that are presented on the ballots. And they'll vote for candidates that are proponents of bigger government or a little bit stricter laws on or regulations. And they're okay with it because it's still, by and large, better than where they came from. And so they have a higher tolerance for government intrusion. And so that's creating more of a purple effect across North Carolina, at least. It's actually also contrasting that rural urban divide to a greater degree than it was maybe even 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah, Josiah, I don't think that we've really 
done an episode on on this topic. So I kind of want to, we may have actually had a uh, talk about it briefly at the recent Austin Forum that we did. But what's your take on this in terms of Texas and, you know, with this whole idea of there's all these Californians moving here. And do you think these people that are moving to Texas, do you think they really are largely coming from California? Or maybe, as I've, I've suggested before, that there's probably a lot of people that are uh, coming from the Midwest by way of California. But do you think that they're bringing their more liberal politics here? Um, or maybe they're refugees from higher taxes, higher regulations and, you know, and housing troubles, you know, uh, you know, a housing crisis that they're experiencing in more regulated places. How do you think it's playing out here? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Are the folks and it's not, you know, obviously, People are coming to Texas from all of the other 49 states plus the District of Columbia. So it's certainly not just California, although because of its size and other things, I think there's probably a disproportionate number coming from California. And then, you know, the question has always been, well, are the people who are coming, you know, fleeing California or other blue states, are they going to bring more liberal values and voting patterns with them? Uh, or are these kind of like the conservative, more conservative, limited government refugees from California? And they, you know, I, I certainly know people who have moved here from California or Illinois, and they are sort of like in one of those old movies, the like one survivor of the fatal boat crash who, you know, wants to warn everybody about the dangerous shoals ahead, you know. Uh, so I don't know. I, I've seen kind of inconsistent data on this. I have seen some data that suggests that transplants are more liberal than native born Texans. Right. Uh, at the same time, I've also I also saw in the exit polls for the 2018 Senate race in Texas that apparently uh, Beto won the vote among people who were born here, but lost uh, to Cruz among people who, you know, came to Texas after they were born. Uh, and the, and that was like the, that margin was the, the overall margin, of course, because Cruz won. Uh, so, so I don't know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult. And it, in some ways it kind of mirrors some of the immigration issues, some of the stuff that you hear about like you know, in immigration, sometimes you'll hear people talk about how people are going to come from uh, countries with more of a history of big government or other liberal stuff, and they're going to bring that with them versus there's definitely, I think there's definitely been cases like with the Vietnamese refugees or the Cuban refugees where are 100% the opposite of the policies that you would find in the home country because they had to leave. <laughs> so, so it's hard to say. So Texas, to me, seems much more a melting pot, at least of Central America and South America than North Carolina, whereas we have a large population, especially where I live in Raleigh, uh, of those from India and China and Korea. And so I think that's also creating some other disparities in terms of political makeup. Um, I had just anecdotally, I had some Indian neighbors, and they're willing to put up with a lot more on the political front than I would say most native born North Carolinians, or at least those that are center right. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're okay with bigger government intervention and things like that. And so Texas and North Carolina will both be instructive. I would say going in as 2020, you know, comes around the corner and we see how people begin to vote. But Going back to even that special election and, you know, noticing that President Trump had won that district in North Carolina by 12 points and then Dan Bishop only won it by two. I think that uh, 
we need to be careful about generalizing across an entire state just by taking one particular election in one particular congressional district. But even so, we're becoming more of a melting pot even within our own states. And so to just say that, I, I'm not really sure where all of the cards are going to land yet. And um, <laughs> and I don't know. So I know you're a big fan of school choice, and there used to be a decent number of Democrats who were also supportive uh, in the past, but not so much now. So why do you support school choice? And how is that issue playing politically in North Carolina? Sure. So it's a good question. And as a parent, I'm a proponent of school choice because I really believe that it's ultimately up to the parents uh, to ensure that their child receives the best education possible. That doesn't mean that there's not a role for the public. Uh, Obviously, our tax dollars go to public education. And in states that have school choice programs, such as North Carolina, taxpayers have an interest in ensuring that children receive a sound education. But when it comes to school choice more specifically, uh, for example, I know that Texas does not have school choice options like we do here in North Carolina. um, But since I do believe that parents should be the should have the final say in their child's education, I believe school choice obviously gives them that power to do so, and um, that's something that is especially important when you consider just the various learning styles of different children, and the fact that bullying is increasingly becoming an issue. That parents be able to have the ability to send their child somewhere where they feel like they're safe, that they're being well educated. And that also is meeting their unique needs. So we have different learning styles and we're becoming more and more aware of that. And I think that largely the public school education system was set up in more of a utilitarian model. So as to this is I might offend some public school teachers here, so that's not my intention, but sort of herd children through and just give them the facts, especially as we became more reliant upon testing. Um, They just wanted them to have the facts well enough to pass these tests so that the teachers could pass their performance reviews. And that's not really what education's about. It's not just merely uh, the metrics of, you know, standardized testing and days attended, uh, days of school attended. And so I think that school choice sort of disrupts the education market, the K-12 market, in a way that is helping public schools and private schools um, and charters really compete with one another for these students. And I think that that's a good thing because it requires them to actually up their game. What are, what are the current school choice options that are available in North Carolina right now? Okay, so in North Carolina, we have something that's, uh, this is our latest option and it's called an education savings account. And that is limited currently to children with special needs. Uh, We also have, but that's about $9,000 per year. So it's sufficient to be able to at least afford a moderate private school in the area if that's what the parent chooses. Um, We also have opportunity scholarships, which are for families that are low to low mid-income levels. And that's about $4,500 a year. And so that helps offset the cost of private school tuition if they so choose. And then we also have um, charter schools. Now, our charter schools, we have caps on them. So the General Assembly has decided that only X amount of charter schools can can open per year. And our governor, who is a Democrat, is ardently opposed to that. He would love to just see charter schools uh, 
go back uh, to becoming traditional public schools again. He would like to roll back the opportunity scholarship program funding and things like that. So these are our options, but given that we've got a democratic governor and we've got uh, just very, very small majorities of Republicans in the General Assembly. Uh, school choice is a battle that continues to take place each legislative session here in North Carolina. So what would you say to the argument? You know, so there's some people who don't like school choice because uh, they think it hurts the public schools or stuff like that. But there's also people who say they, they're skeptical of the idea of school choice because they think that once the private schools get uh, dependent on the government money, then uh, government interference and strings will come with that. Uh, and it will, you know, kind of undermine what has made some of those private schools so successful in the past. So what is your take on that? So that, that's an important point, And it's one of the reasons that I would say homeschool families, which we're a home. I'm a homeschool family, and um, my oldest is homeschooled, and I homeschooled my others for about nine years. And it was one of the reasons we were always so opposed to various uh, proposals by legislators that were attempting to give us funds, kind of like they did uh, education savings accounts for special needs students. And so. I'm wary of the government intrusion that can take place when it comes to public money going to private institutions. Uh, however, that's really what requires a vigilant citizenry and legislators that are committed to, to protecting uh, autonomy of private institutions. And so you think about the ways in which higher education institutions, such as private colleges, receive federal funding and state funding in the form of Pell Grants and otherwise, uh, and they're still allowed to largely practice how they want to and teach what they want to. And I would say that by and large, the private schools here in North Carolina have been able to maintain full autonomy as well. So it hasn't borne out that this is going to be a problematic issue. Now, could it at some point in time? I think just about anything that could be said about anything. But at the moment, really what it's doing is saying that the money is following the child. So the money isn't going to that private institution directly from the state. It's going to the parents of the child, and then they are exercising their parental authority and determining how that money is distributed to uh, whatever school they, they so choose. Let's talk for a second about the the politics of school choice because you had you had referred me to an article um, in the Wall Street Journal um, saying that school choice moms uh, may have actually tipped the Florida gubernatorial election. Talk a little bit about about what's what maybe what happened in that election, but also how it's playing out in other states in terms of the I guess you could say the the politics of school choice. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I think that the gubernatorial race in Florida, DeSantis beat Gillum by thousands of votes. Uh, I think it was in the tens of thousands. And there was this movable middle or this sub electorate of minority mothers whose children were attending schools of choice. And there's about 100,000 of them in that state. And many of them were registered Democratic voters. However, they became crossover voters because this was a single issue for them. And it was enough that they were they were satisfied with where their children were going. Gillum had joined up with the teachers unions. And so under threat of them possibly getting that option taken back from them after they had seen their children thriving, that's enough to, to rile any mom up. And so they voted accordingly, even if 
maybe they weren't pro-life or maybe they weren't pro-limited government in other respects, or maybe they were uh, for a larger welfare state, yet school choice became that singular issue for them. And I think that in our, in our society where we get to customize so much and we get our birch boxes in the mail and we get to, you know, choose which kind of Uber we want and things like that, uh, people, especially younger Gen X parents and older millennials, they want options like this for their children. And so I foresee this being more of an election issue uh, in the coming years and in the coming elections. I think it will grow, um, at least among that particular sub-electorate. Sub and um, in North Carolina, it's very much an electoral issue. And the teachers unions spend lots and lots of money on Democratic candidates. And there are a bunch of fired up parents, though, that have had enough. And I'm I'm beginning to see them be more vocal. I receive phone calls even at Civitas uh, from some of these disgruntled parents and disgruntled teachers. They're just really not happy with the public school monopoly in our state. All right. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is because you've been writing a lot and you've been writing a lot with me. So big softball question. What motivates you to, to write so much? Oh, well, that's a good one. So even if it's a big softball one, I really, really like answering this question. And at the heart of it is that there is a vacuum. And you and I have discussed this before offline, that we see that there's a vacuum that's been created as it comes from like pertains to politics and the crumbling institutions around us, the labor force and economic uncertainty that's going on right now with the fourth industrial revolution, to borrow a term from Ben Sass, and he probably got it from somewhere else. But uh, there's just a lot of disruption going on right now, and um, we're not really sure what the future of conservatism looks like, and people aren't really certain that they have what it takes to achieve the American dream. And so these are issues that both of us care about, and so that's one of the motivators for me when it comes to writing about this, is helping people make sense of some of this seeming madness. Let me ask, ask you both this, is, you know, with this crisis of despair and so forth, you know, why, why policy, if you will, is, uh, you know, is there, why, you know, why spend our time focused on policy? Is that really uh, where we can really make a difference in people's lives? Um, it, you know, or should we be, you know, is there a different approach that's sort of beyond voting, beyond getting involved with political parties? And um, is, you know, where, you know, where we're spending so much time is talking about ideas. Is that where the action is? Policy is how we love our neighbors politically. So I think that there is a place for policy to address some of these problems that we're seeing. Um, but by and large, I think that uh, the policies we should be promoting are the ones that include government rolling back their role and uh, enabling civil society to begin to build their muscles again. So the bigger the bigger government gets, the more civil society muscles atrophy. And by civil society, I mean like nonprofits, uh, private businesses, uh, churches, families, communities, things like that. And so, uh, yes, policy certainly has a role in so much as it can step out of the way um, and roll back regulations so as to help 
people become economically in, independent um, through, you know, occupational licensing reform, criminal justice reform, things like that. Those are ways in which policy can play a role. But I see that role as being uh, essentially them diminishing their involvement and their nanny state tendencies and really just stepping out of the way so that the inst- in, essentially government's job is more about executing justice on behalf of those whose individual rights have been infringed upon. And uh, to the extent that they go beyond that, oftentimes that, that's really a role that civil society should be playing rather than government. What say you, Josiah? So I don't think that this is mostly a policy-driven solution. I would say policy is probably more dealing with the wreckage of other factors. Uh, but I do think, you know, if you try to figure out what is the what is the cause of the despair, right, that you refer to, and there are some obvious potential candidates, whether that is things with the public education system or problems with the nature of the economy and manufacturing, other things like that, or policy-driven aspect of the decline of civil society. And to the extent that that's true, there might be policy responses that could help with the recovery, although I don't think that that would be the meat of it by any means, but it could still be a, a necessary part of it. You know, on, on this idea, I think that one of the things that, that I think about a lot, I ask people about a lot is, you know, the situation with young people that are, you know, they, they seem, at least according to polls, they seem to be uh, socialism curious. Uh, they seem to be down on capitalism. They are down on conservatives. Um, you know, I think it was David Brooks who uh, wrote about the the coming Republican apocalypse or something along these lines. And that sparked the um, the panel discussion that I alluded to earlier that uh, Josiah was part of. And we discussed the future of freedom and, and this whole idea of what do we do? Uh, how do we uh, how do we preach this message to a younger generation? I'm not convinced that the older generation, boomers and such, are, are getting capitalism right or getting conservatism right. But looking to the next generation, you know, I know one of the things I'm very concerned about is how do we redeem the tide, if you will? How do we start conveying that message of conservatism? And I don't know if either one of you want to comment on that particularly, but it's something that I, I think I think about it almost every day is how do we convey that message of uh, that there is opportunity in a free market system and free enterprise um, and that there's hope because even though we have a pretty robust economy right now uh, compared to prior years, there's also sort of this crisis of despair. There's not much of a message out there, at least it's not getting conveyed very well, that there's a lot of things going right, but there's so much despair. And I know there was a video going around earlier this week where there's a USC student and she was talking that she could really feel her anxiety about climate change. And I don't really want to necessarily turn this into a conversation about climate change per se, but just that sense of despair and there, like I said, there's a lot that is going well, the things that have worked for this country, but there's now sort of a loss of hope in, in all this. I don't know if either one of you want to sort of comment on where we are and where do we go from here? If you look at the perspective of someone who, let's say, is in their late 20s, early 30s, what have they known of conservatism in their lifetime? Right. What are the what are the big successes, the victories of conservatism? Uh, I would say that as far as their experience has gone, uh, conservatism and the election and of people who consider themselves conservatives 
has led to extended, perhaps ill-thought-out wars. Uh, there was a financial crisis. There have been, you know, a, a number of other things uh, on the social front that you know, LGBT stuff or what hasn't necessarily resonated with them. And all of that is before you even get to anything about Donald Trump. So why would they? Like, if for someone the age of you and me, Doug, Gen Xers, uh, for us, we could see very clearly the successes of conservatism from the Reagan administration and after with winning the Cold War, bringing taxes down from a absurdly high level to a, a low level. Uh, inflation used to was a serious problem that was beaten crime was a serious crisis and and that was gotten under control all of those are you know welfare reform all of those were things and then the you know the economy was also doing really great yeah well that's a good point and uh, it really is a generational gap and of course many will say that most of the time it, it They'll say it because it's true. Young people typically start out pretty progressive and then progress over to conservatism. But there is something to be said, I would say, about the sort of field that the moral majority left behind. And I think that that gave some younger people a foul taste in their mouth uh, because it was just it wasn't real conservatism in some ways either. It was more about political power and leveraging political power for, you know, what they deemed was were moral purposes. And of course, uh, all politics is downstream from culture and um, laws are essentially moral statements. But I think that uh, for a lot of younger people, they saw that sort of statism that was advocated by those in the 90s uh, that were part of that moral majority and that put off many older millennials, um, at least in my age group. But then now fast forwarding to where we're at right now and we're looking at Gen Z who is uh, becoming more of a, uh, a formidable voting block and then the millennials again. A lot of them, I would say what they associate with conservatism, to your point, Josiah, is this sort of populist protectionism that we're seeing under the Trump administration. And they just don't, they don't have that sort of Reagan era golden age and that broad coalition that was uh, determined to battle communism. They don't see that. They don't resonate with it. They don't connect with it. Uh, all, all of that was happening in the late 80s before some of these people were even born in early 90s. And so all they remember is 9-11, if they remember that, and endless wars and a bunch of government corruption and a lot of political polarization. So uh, I, I think that it's understandable that many of them are disenchanted with conservatism. But I think it's not it's not conservatism that they're they're really disenchanted with. It's this, this faux conservatism that's really just statism and economic protectionism masquerading as conservatism. And so I think that that's really where, where our task lies if we really care to win these future generations over. Uh, right. Yes. So uh, my colleague Clark Packard is a big, very big George H.W. Bush fan. And I, I think H.W. is probably a little uh, underrated, although the dismantling of the Soviet Union and the original Gulf War, both of those, at least at the time, were perceived as being very popular, but both economically and politically, there were you know a lot of issues there. And of course, he was not he was not reelected. But even so, you know, just like in general, conservatism would not limited to Reagan, but you know, you between what you saw at the federal and state and 
some cases, the local level, like in New York City with Giuliani, conservatism seemed to work, right? It seemed like things would get better when conservatives were in power and liberals, they seem to be kind of like tripping over themselves. And and if you're a younger person now, you don't have any experience of that. And the experience that you do have is, is kind of uh, reversed a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, you know, to, to mention a, a piece that we wrote together, I guess in the Hill a few months back, uh, this is one of the reasons that I'm, I'm I, I uh, this isn't meant to be a full throated, never Trumper statement, but I, I wish that we had a meaningful primary um, it, just in the sense of a primary. We, we hold elections to battle out ideas. And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get that, uh, you know, particularly once the, uh, you know, the I think the GOP has shut down uh, primaries in a, a few states, but that may not really matter when the uh, the only primary candidates are Bill Weld, Joe Walsh, and Mark Sanford. So I don't think that we're really going to get that full-throated uh, argument about big ideas this go-round. And I think that from a long-term perspective, I think that since there's so much work to be done with young people, I think that that's, uh, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, in some sense, it would be helpful if we had a uh, uh, somebody, I know this isn't a perfect analogy, but almost have that Goldwater moment of having someone uh, articulate the ideas that are, you know, that over time are, uh, you know, championed more fully by a, a Reagan, you know, decades later. I, we're, we're missing out on that opportunity, I think. But, um, you know, I want to, I know we, we're sort of running long and I want to kind of wrap up here. So I want to ask you a couple of quick questions. Um, what is your favorite C.S. Lewis writing and why? Oh, my goodness. Now you're talking my language, especially talking my language. Uh, Clive Staples Lewis, my favorite author. Uh, let's see, my favorite writing of his. So it used to be that Hideous Strength, which is the third installment in his Space Trilogy, which is one of his lesser known works. Um, that, that Hideous Strength is still, it's still at the top of my list. Uh, but really what that is, is a fairy tale for grownups, is what Lewis called that. And it is a critique on culture as he saw it, uh, or at least as he saw the trajectory of it uh, back in 1945. And so, you know, that's the uh, World War II wrapping up, um, people rebuilding, and Lewis is writing it within that frame of mind and just what all, uh, what, what he was seeing happening in academia. And so it's a fascinating story where sort of uh, Norse mythology meets England in this uh, fictional area of England. And so uh, he just uses something that he loves, which was that sort of Nordic mythology and uh, pairs it with England where he was at and attempts to to teach readers, uh, really, if we're going to go down this sort of postmodern, secular, godless, everything is subjective road, um, this is what we need to be pre be prepared for. And so that hideous strength is definitely one of my favorites. And then right after that, I'm not going to go on and wax about this next one, but it's really good too. So you're your listeners should take a read, and that's called Till We Have Faces. And that is really uh, just a retelling of the the story between Psyche and um, Apollo. So, Well, from C.S. Lewis to hip-hop, what hip-hop song best describes your worldview? 
Oh, oh, that's a good one. I usually just listen to it for the beat, Doug. Um, <laughs> that's what my kids say, at least. Okay. Um, I really like... Oh, man, my worldview, though. See, I was going to just say California Love because I really like that by Tupac, but that really isn't my worldview. I, I would love to think about that a little bit longer because I haven't. Clearly, I'm not very deep thinking when it comes to my hip-hop preferences. I mean, Getting Jiggy With It by Will Smith is pretty fun, and I always wanted to be like one of those dancers on the video and everything, but that never happened. But that's not like deep thinking. That's just very, very shallow. <laughs> Um, well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Hit it. Hi, Come on. <laughs>